Welcome to Listen With Your Eyes, the show that is heard, not seen. I'm your host, the blind guy, Callum Brennan, and on this podcast, we'll be discussing what it's like to live with a disability. Let's get started. Before we get into the meat of today's episode, I just want to reiterate what was in the episode description that this is going to be quite a heavy episode and uh, reiterate the content warning given in the description but with that said I am joined today by B. Welcome Thank you so much for having me, Callum. I'm really excited to do this. No, thank you for joining me. And uh, I think uh, with the subject matter we will get into, I feel weird saying I'm looking forward to the, uh, the episode, but I think it is definitely going to be very informative, which is a big part of why I do this podcast so yeah I mean it's a, it's a difficult subject matter but you know it doesn't make it any less real um, certainly very um, much so. so um to introduce myself to everyone uh, mm-hmm. my name's B I'm 23 um I live in Preston but I'm from Chester originally um I am disabled and chronically ill uh, my primary diagnosis is fibromyalgia syndrome which is a chronic pain condition with lots of other nasty little bits thrown in there. Sure, and I guess uh, those, as you put it, those nasty little bits, I guess we could uh, maybe uh, delve into more as uh, we go through the episode. Uh, yeah, it, it's gonna, it, it kind of, it's, I don't know how to describe it, like it's infected every area of my life. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, I feel like that's probably that's uh, any disability I feel like summed up in a nutshell yep <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, I feel like a quick clarification I just feel obligated to make is when you say you're from Preston it's Preston in the north because uh, oh, there, yeah. there, there is a Preston in the south here in uh, England is there For, a, I didn't actually know there was a south Preston I grew, south yes I, I grew up next to it <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. In Dorset. Oh, no, I've been in Preston, Lancashire. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's why, uh, like, say, the fo- the Preston football team is called Preston North End. Oh, maybe that is why, yeah. Yeah. Oh, see, I've learned something new already. Yeah, Amazing. I was going to say, very, very much living up to the, uh, you learn something new every day. <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully, uh, again, this episode will be what uh, will be the new thing for those listening so uh when it comes to your disability uh obviously we can go more in depth in a sec but were you born with it no so for the majority of my life i lived as an able-bodied person i struggled with um mental health conditions from like my early teen years around like 14 15 i started accessing mental health services Mm-hmm. But I had no experience um, with any kind of, you know, for all intensive purposes, I interacted with the world completely as an able-bodied person. 
I presented that way for a very, very, very long time, even after my fibro diagnosis. Um, but I have the the experience of knowing how to interact with the world as an able-bodied person, and then this illness coming about, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm having to face a lot of barriers and challenges that, you know, some of them I didn't even know were there. Um, so now I, you know, I am, I'm now a wheelchair user. Um, I also use a power chair. If I'm having a quite good day, I'll use my walking stick. So I do have a few mobility aids. Um, so now I do not present as um, an able-bodied person. Like, I'm quite identifiably disabled if you saw me in the street. Okay. Uh, and uh, if you don't mind me asking, when you say um, mental health issues, is that like uh, depression, anxiety? Yeah, I struggled with both, um, like all the way through high school in sixth form. Um, but interestingly, um, you know, fibro does have a connection to both of those conditions. Right. So, and I'm looking back at a lot of like my my lived experience of my life and kind of going, okay, well, was that fibro? Because it fits all of you know the the tick boxes of things I'm looking out for. Um, uh, how so? Like, I, so now I'm sort of in a question of like, oh well, do I have depression and anxiety because I have fibromyalgia, or was it that you know I had them separately and then the fibromyalgia is its own condition, or did having depression and anxiety encourage the fibromyalgia to develop? Um, because you can have symptoms before. Uh, what they describe as your trigger for the onset of the illness. Right. Okay. Uh, as far as what uh, fibromyalgia, did I say that correctly? Yeah. Uh, as far as what it entails, do you uh, care to like give more of a, I guess, more of a description? Yeah, of course. So um, fibromyalgia is short for fibromyalgia syndrome. Just sometimes you'll see it referred to as FMS, but um, most people just call it fibro because that's a lot easier to say. Um, if you were to break the word down, so fibro, that um, is referring to fibrous connective tissue, so you're looking at um, tendons and ligaments. Mm -hmm. The my, the my, that's referring to muscle, and then algia, meaning pain. So it, it does literally translate to tendon, ligament, muscle pain <laughs> syndrome. Um, it is characterized by this chronic widespread pain, but fibro is very, very different for everybody. My experience and somebody who might be listening to this with fibro could be wildly different and our access needs might be wildly different as well. Um, there is no kind of, there is no cure. Um, there's barely any kind of treatment. Um, so the, the kind of advice you're given is like, try everything and see what works for you. Okay. Uh, and like, I suppose like you're saying, how it can vary, is that say, like you mentioned earlier that for yourself, you often uh, have to use a wheelchair. Yeah. Because I like to say, so that's not necessarily the case for everyone who has fibro. 
No, some people might have really, really um, like mild symptoms in comparison. They might find that you know, it's just work it worse at the end of the day, or um, you know, only might need mobility aid support around the house, maybe, but are still able to go out uh, without them. Okay. Whereas other people um, are becoming completely reliant on mobility aids because that is their only way to access the world anymore. Um, and um, it can lead to that there's lots of different associated conditions um, and uh, lots of other parts of the syndrome as well so symptom obviously one of the big ones is this chronic widespread pain but um, it also comes with fatigue, insomnia Uh, we talk about fibro fog within the community or brain fog so the, the clinical description is cognitive dysfunction and I can only describe that as it's like someone poured syrup on the cogs in my brain it doesn't matter like how little something is I'm, I just might not be able to find the words for it right. or remember what I'm doing I've had moments where I don't even know where I am uh, okay. which can be really really scary uh, sure. especially like I was the first time it happened I was out in public and I just completely lost all sense of where I was and I just sort of started running around looking for my partner because I was just like, it felt like I was trapped in a horrible nightmare but it was real. Um, and I was just like, I don't know where we are, I don't know where we are. Um, but you know, other things like migraines, anxiety, irritable bladder and bowel, uh, increased sensory sensitivity is a big one. So. Um, that can be like to temperature, touch, noise, light, um, foods as well. Things like mint and chili are big ones that people can't tolerate anymore, myself included. Okay. So if you have a curry, you need it very mild. Well, this is the thing is, you know, I use children's toothpaste and mouthwash now because I can't handle just like normal mint toothpaste it feels like someone's poured acid inside of my mouth and I it gets really really inflamed so is is children's so children's is less strong is it yeah I find like um, strawberry flavoured ones I was going to say that's the one I was thinking of when you mentioned children's toothpaste I remember using that as a kid yeah yeah so that's what I use now okay I mean, I could certainly yeah. see how it would be more pleasant than mint, because, I mean, per, again, this is just something I've thought about before. It's it, interesting to me how some toothpastes can even vary in how strong they are when it comes to the mintiness. Yeah, it can do. Um, I found it really hard at first until I sort of, I think I found one that was just strawberry flavour and didn't have any minute in it and I just mm. finally had relief and I was like, oh, I can brush my teeth again without feeling <laughs> like somebody's like slicing a Chelsea smile into me because that's what it feels like. And the same with like chilli. Um, like even to the point that I can't have sweet chilli anymore. Like black pepper sometimes is a bit much for me. Okay. So the food I eat is very bland. I've got to say it's quite salty and bland. Fair enough. Well, I know I think uh, a lot of international people would argue um, 
all British flute, British food is bland anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, you mentioned as far as potentially yeah, like like having symptoms and stuff before officially being diagnosed. Like you said, you're 23 now. Like how long ago was it that you were diagnosed? Um, but yes, yeah, so I was diagnosed in April 2021, mm-hmm. but I started my journey towards my diagnosis in 2020. Um, it takes quite a long time to get diagnosed. I know some people that wait, you know, you know have waited years and years to get their diagnosis. I was quite fortunate that mine didn't take that long. Do you think it was um, complicated by the pandemic? As far as like in a way, you yes. getting diagnosed, um, yeah, because it, it they all I got told all the time was just like oh, kind of every time I was referred to someone, I'd get the assessment done and they'd be like oh we're just letting you know that we're really really backlogged so, you know it could be, you know x amount of months until you even get through to, you know see a clinician, yeah, about it. Um, but I started in like I had my first blood test done in December 2020. So I started asking for um, help from my GP and sort of starting that process of getting the diagnostic testing done. Right. After my, I used to do a lot of strongman and I loved it. I really did. Um, so to, you know I was in the gym, heavyweights all the time having a great time um, and through there I started working with a sports therapist Okay. and um, they were really helpful because I, I broke both of my feet like an idiot I did um, so I broke one in October 2019 and then February 2020 I broke my other one so I was looking for help just with you know in terms of physical recovery for my feet Mm-hmm. I'd never had any physiotherapy or anything from the NHS, but I was being bothered by them. So I thought I'd get some help for it. And then a couple of sessions in, um, the sports therapist turns to me and said, hey, have, have you ever heard of fibromyalgia? And I honestly, I'd heard of it all once before when I was like 15. And I'd never paid attention to that word again until he said it to me and he just said that he'd been listening to me in the sessions and he was like all of your symptoms match fibro and I I think you really need to go and get checked out um, by your GP and so that's where I started Um, and you know I was having all these symptoms but I wasn't even aware that they were symptoms of a condition okay so do you is there a chance that you breaking your feet so close together is could that be related to the fibro or is that unrelated um depends who you ask really uh-huh. uh i i did ask the the doctors sort of when i broke the second foot you know i said to them i was like okay you know i am a young healthy 20 year old 21 year old like i i don't understand what's happening here why is it that you know both of my feet have broken in succession so close to each other when really, you know, I wasn't doing anything that would be classed as, you know, completely overexerting them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I trampolined with a lot of other people in my age group. None of them were breaking their feet. But um, So the doctor said to me, they were like, oh, first time freak accident, second time coincidence. If you uh, break a foot a third time, then we might look into it, <laughs> was the response I got. So I have no idea if that was um, a, maybe like a, a, a sign that something was wrong, or maybe the fibro contributed to that. Maybe it didn't. I'm not sure on that one. Sure. So it was, so both of them you broke whilst trampolining? I did. Yes, okay. I did. <laughs> you were big into your trampolining then? Um, I started when I, when I was at university. Um, okay. And so I was trampolining for UCLan at the time. Um, and I used to, like, you know, we had training sessions twice a week, every week, so I went along. I learned lots. I'm not by any means going to pretend I was good. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Um, and that's sure. the important thing. Oh, yeah, certainly. It certainly is. So, I think you've mentioned earlier how the fibro uh, is uh, triggered. Uh, yes. By something. Uh, are you aware of what that would be for you? Yeah, so, I mean, it's different for different people. Um, mm-hmm. Recognised triggers of fibromyalgia, just, and this, like, I'm not a medical professional. I am not, like, qualified in chronic illnesses and stuff like that, but from my reading um, and my knowledge, like, the recognised triggers for fibromyalgia are um, surgery, viral illness, neck injury and then uh the final category which is emotional trauma and stress uh-huh. uh so that was for me uh that's where i fit in and actually it was a big part of the diagnosis was that um in 2019 um summer i was uh, living abroad in switzerland um, and i went on holiday on my own for a week uh, and you know, really unfortunately, I was the victim of a, quite a, a violent uh, rape. And, um, you know, so that is what they believe to have been the trigger for me, was that experience and obviously the trauma and stress that came with it. Um, like, I've since learned a lot about my own life looking back. You know, I've realised that that wasn't the first time I was sexually assaulted. I, I've now through working really hard, um, you know, in sessions and uh-huh. on my own. Uh, like uh, I now realise the first time I was sexually assaulted, I was in year eight, and that it continued throughout my childhood. And then um, the last time, uh, the last instance of sexual assault or rape I, suff- I was the victim of was in. When I was twenty-one, right. So that's quite a chunk of my life. That so, um, you know that I was the victim of these, you know, horrific predatory acts, um, you know, criminal acts that yeah. people were perpetrating against me. 
but until I had sort of sat down and thought through everything and spent lots of time just you know working through the trauma and that's not like I am nowhere near done with that work I know that um, but you know I'm, I'm a lot more informed about my own self because of the knowledge of what my trigger was and that is part of what makes the clinicians I've worked with so confident about my fibromyalgia diagnosis is that it from their perspective everything like it hits every box in their list um, and a perfect timeline for something happening in like 2019 and then me finally come, you know realizing something's wrong at the you know back end of 2020 apparently that's quite typical right. um you know that kind of it doesn't it it won't it doesn't have to be immediate or right away your trigger can happen and then you noticing the onset of symptoms can be much much later okay uh, it with you mentioned how uh, you know being sexually assaulted when you were younger and that, you know that's something you've realized working on it is is that a case of that your it's like your mind had like buried it in your unconscious and it's been brought to the f forefront this is what i think must be happening um because mm. I, I mean it's well documented that the human brain does weird things to help you survive through trauma like whether that be lock memories away falsify them whatever um you know, it, it's it's much cleverer than I am. Um, and I also think that, you know, I just hadn't recognized it. A lot of people, I, when I was younger, I didn't... Um, I don't think that I was given an accurate representation of what, like, sexual assault could look like. Okay. You know, um, in your mind or at least I did I always imagine like these or from media you know there's always these really horrifically violent um, instances and it does happen like that but also you know if you say no to somebody and they violate that consent um, even if you know it can be your partner it could be your your spouse um, you might have a really long-term living relationship with that person they can still sexually assault you um if you say no to you know uh if you're engaging in sexual contact and activity and you say oh well um i only want to do this if you know we use a condom and then that person takes the condom off or um you know, refuses to wear one and then continues with that act, that is still sexual assault because your consent has been broken. Sure. And so um, when I look back at a lot of things, like a lot of times that I was silenced by other people or misled about what they'd done because I was a child, um, yeah, I, I can unpack a lot of it now and, and see it for what it was. But at the time, my brain was doing what I could to protect me from the reality of what was happening to me. Yeah. 
I think it's it's often something that I've spoken about with people mm. as far as how the mind works with the uh, yeah like you said I mean in your case it sounds like it may have not been exactly in this way but I know I think it's fair to say that I I'm, and I'm not I wouldn't claim that my example is anywhere near on the, <laughs> the same level as yours but I know I've often said to people like and I've spoken about it on this podcast where I lost my sight at five I have mm -hmm. memories before and I have memories after but I don't have memories during every as far as what happened around me losing my sight like my mum finding me uh, in my bedroom trying to find the toilet that's when I'd gone completely blind that stuff I know through my mum telling me my dad telling me but and actually I've realised since actually a couple of nightmares I realized like, I think when I was a still when I was a kid but a few years on I think I had a nightmare a couple of times when I was trying to get to the toilet and couldn't find my way out of the bedroom um, and so with the fact that I have memories before and after I very much put credence into that theory which uh, you know is from from what I recall from my time doing uh, A-level psychology is from Freud um, I know he had his problems when it came to other things uh, but I think that is <laughs> certainly one of his many uh, hypotheses that I do believe in which is that the brain hides yeah very much hides traumatic experiences in the unconscious Yes, as you know, it's a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite interesting. I always say, to, sometimes I, well, I don't always say, but sometimes I say it to people, um, you know, you know that thing where people think they can come up to you and go, "What's wrong with you?" I'm like, um, excuse me. <laughs> um, so on days where you know, I'm just not up for playing the stupid, silly little dance around game of answering everybody's questions because like I know it's just morbid curiosity so sometimes I just you know, chase people like oh what's wrong with you or you know what they're actually meant saying is last time I saw you you weren't using a wheelchair and today you are using a wheelchair I wonder what, what has you know influenced that decision that yeah. instead they go like what's wrong with you I will say you call that morbid curiosity I wouldn't call that morbid curiosity I'd call that just being a, being a tit <laughs> to be yeah. honest if they put it there's morbid curiosity is just generally it would be them going oh why are you in a wheelchair today yeah so this is the <laughs> thing is that you know sometimes you can tell that what they actually want to hear is like some really gory story about how you were in some horrible accident and now you'll never use your legs again and, oh, I was mauled by you know, there. yeah that uh, and you know if that happened to me, I wouldn't be going like you, you know that in itself being mauled by a bear—an extremely traumatic experience that you know you don't have to disclose to strangers. But sometimes no. on dates where I've just had enough, I turn around and I'm like, 
yeah, I was sexually abused and really violently raped and the trauma has, um, you know, taken such a toll on my brain that now I'm in constant agony. It's like living in torture. And just watch their faces <laughs> because they're going to go, oh, because it's the answer they really wanted. But at the same time, like, it's it not given to them in the format that they want it in. I mean, in some ways, I would argue no one would be ready for that kind of answer as well. <laughs> Like I feel like in the modern yeah. day, like a lot of it's very much one of those things, isn't it? People say it's like people don't know what they want. Like really, they don't know what they want. They think they know what they want, and then they don't. Because yeah, and please, like before I trauma dump on somebody like this, you know, and I'm sure that you've had this before as well. Specifically, like GP receptionist is quite a common experience of where you kind of you you dodging the questions because you don't want to answer them because you don't have to. Like you don't owe them the answers to these questions mm. um and you're kind of dancing around like going like no i don't i i don't want to say it like not today it's too early or whatever um and then sometimes people just push me too far and if i'm in a really bad mood especially like if i'm in a lot of pain as well that really affects my tolerance for uh this kind of nonsense so sometimes I, you know, I do just turn around and I'm like, there you go, there's there's the answer. <laughs> go have fun with it. <laughs> yeah. No, I can. Maybe underst- next time you won't ask someone like that. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. I will say, I think. In comp- I don't think uh, I'm in a situation where I'd be able to compare my situation to yours, but I definitely understand what you're saying. Also, though, at the same time, and again, I feel like I've. I've said it before I'm very fortunate I think from a personal perspective like when it comes to affecting me personally I have not received nearly as much discrimination as other people I think mm-hmm. uh, you know I've, I've like and by that I mean just directly at me you know like and obviously I know I've received some like a big one like it's funny enough talking to my mum about it the other day you know because she was then saying you say you've received no discrimination directly but I feel like it's hard to think that you probably haven't received any like you know from the times you wouldn't you know you'd get turned down for jobs and stuff and I was there like I know I I agree there wholeheartedly but what I just mean like say I've heard of people like say guide dog owners like myself I've seen social media posts or had people talk about you know them having situations where someone has just come up to them on a bus or in the middle of a shop and just started berating them for mistreating the dog because you know the dogs shouldn't have to work the dog should be free and all that stuff and i'm there like i have never experienced that myself thankfully oh my goodness Mm. Where do you have to be in life that something you need to do in public is go and berate someone for using a guide dog? Like, wow. Yeah, I think it. It's a well. I mean, you could argue that about anyone who's disabled, can't you? Really, like not just the the guide dog user. You're correct, but it's like. There are so many situations, isn't there? I think of people berating 
someone for doing like isn't it you hear like you know if someone who's disabled but it's not visually obvious is sat in a disabled seat and then someone like berates them it's just quite funny the one I the closest I've had and I wouldn't even say this is on the same scale because he wasn't berating me so in some ways it's an unfair comparison but say I remember once I was sat in a disabled seat on the train mm-hmm. uh, I had my rucksack was next to me and I think with the way that it often is, I have my harness next also on the same chair as my rucksack uh, like yeah. the guide dog harness and it often I think just gets positioned behind my rucksack so it's not as visual but then mm-hmm. obviously my dog is lying at my feet obviously, this is the main reason I would like to sit in a disabled seat if I just had yeah. my cane I wouldn't be that bothered but with him it's just more foot room for him you know yeah. than a regular train seat uh, and one could argue you know you have the guide dog tag on the lead as well so it should have been off but the conductor or whatever his job position was for the station he came on with someone on the train with someone in a wheelchair mm-hmm. and basically it was and the other disabled seat I think someone was sat in there with a pram I think like opposite me which is fine as well like that's the thing like those that makes sense in that situation that's not me but uh, the guy asked me to move and I think because just in the moment he just wasn't thinking that I was disabled he was just thinking I was a guy sat there with my dog yeah um which admittedly internally in my head made me laugh because I was there like you know it just made me think of like if there was like disabled top trumps that someone in a wheelchair outranks someone who's blind um and that's not me saying it shouldn't be that way or, it sh- you know, whatever. It just made me laugh. But then, you know, then when I actually got my, you know, when I, I, I was uh, oh, fine. Because it's just one of those situations where it's bemusing. But, and I don't know if you've had this, you sort of, you don't want to challenge it because it just feels, it's just socially awkward. Yeah. And, you know, you're just there like, all right, fine, I'll move. And then as I moved my rucksack and I think the harness was then visible he was there like oh no 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 worries you stay there <laughs> which yeah people do make assumptions 100 percent. yeah I and i think especially because like there seems to be this assumption that all people that like might you need to use those seats are elderly and that you know there's no reason for a young person to be sat there i've seen that i know that a lot of people who are like younger tend to be um, like face more issues if they went to go and like use those seats on the bus because people come up and be like that's for disabled people and they're like yeah I am disabled <laughs> yeah no you're right there I think again it's been spoken about before that in previous episodes that yeah you're right I think disability it's still associated with elderly people in a set which I think also sort of links to like with other guests with other blind guests I've had on we've talked about how you know I myself has had people you know I've had people come up to me and say you know you don't look blind you know and it's like okay how does a blind person thanks. look well it's the thing you know the stereotype is that cloudy basically cataracts but like that cloudy milky white which 
kind of as a stereotype as a stereotypical image i don't get because you know cataracts can be removed right uh, so um i don't but i think that is the stereotype people have you know it's there like the fact that it's like pretty much you know my eyes look you know quote normal mm-hmm. you know people you know seem to find i've very much noticed because especially in recent months with and especially uh with heat waves we're having like this week at the time of recording uh you know it's very sunny uh due to my sight impairment i think like a lot of uh sight impaired people i'm photophobic you know might not be mm-hmm. as bad as others like you know someone who has albinism but i do have an an air element of photophobia so i wear sunglasses yeah and i have which means then also there are times where i'm wearing sunglasses in the winter or autumn as well if the sun comes out and all that but i have very much noticed that i don't know how to wear this i suppose people seem to be more accepting of my blindness or like challenge me less on it when i'm wearing my glasses my sunglasses because mm-hmm. yeah. again it's like again some i've had previous people say it's like it's the uniform of a blind person <laughs> is the sunglasses and then a cane or guide dog you yeah know, where... and the difference between wearing that uniform and not can make a massive difference to how you're treated i'm sure because i have the same thing depending on what mobility aid i use people treat me wildly differently care to expand on that um a great example uh, is in the middle of preston there are always people in the street like marketing stuff uh, mm-hmm. yeah and um I've seen more recently a lot of evangelical Christian groups out from the churches handing out leaflets. If I go past and I am um, using my walking stick that day, yeah, I will be bombarded with leaflets by these people. Um, you know, they're like, "Yeah, we can heal you." They offer to heal me religiously, and like, sure, whoa. <laughs> um, you know, I get loose leaflets. They really want to part- like me to participate in what they are preaching. Right. If I go past in a wheelchair, these people will actively avoid me and ignore me. Like, refuse to make eye contact with me. Um, even worse when I'm using the power chair. Hmm. Like, it's just kind of for them. You know, you can see it. And they're like, I'm really sorry, but not even God can help you now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also, you know, in just normal like people I know every day, people um, they see me in the wheelchair and they go, "Oh, oh, oh, so you are disabled?" And I'm like, "Yes, that that's what I've been saying this entire time." And they're like, "Yeah, but we've never seen you use a wheelchair before." Um, and it always just stumps me because they kind of think like, "Why is there this association that like, I can?" be disabled i'm still disabled out of the wheelchair i'm still disabled in the wheelchair yeah like nothing has changed i'm just using a mobility aid um but the way i'm treated is very very different depending on what mobility aid i choose to use i get treated as much more of a human being if i'm stood up than sat down sure yeah i think 
again, it comes to that thing of, I guess, a visible disability and the reality is being in a wheelchair is the most recognisable, which I think is a result, not exactly just because, but I think has come as a result of what the, you know, symbol for disability is. I would totally agree, yeah. Which, to be fair, I am not, dis I do think it makes sense for that to be the disabled sign. It, I remember actually being in a media A-level class I was in, uh, which was quite funny because when I went, uh, a few of the students spoke, and then when I put my hand up and the teacher selected me to start to say something, you, I could feel the tension around the other students who were all labelled. Uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, so it, it was quite funny in that sense, but because basically we were talking about I think at that point it was being made a bit of an issue like some people wanted the symbol to be changed because a wheelchair it isn't you know the only kind of disability someone being in a chair yeah but i think that was one where like my argument for it because i remember actually we were like given a task to like create a new one and i remember being sat there and i i had a one-to-one -one ta that was my the case for me throughout mainstream education after losing my sight because it was during reception that I that it happened and I remember her saying to me she was there like so what are you going to do and I was there like nothing and she was there like so well you don't want to do the work I was there like no I just generally don't think you can change it and I then like said this in the class I was there like, like and I, again, it's one of those things where in the moment you're sort of there, like, obviously I'm not speaking for every disabled person out there, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, I don't think changing this makes any sense because, you know, it goes along with the symbols for every other sort of person, situation, man, woman, child. It's always like, it's like a sort of stick figure but not a stick figure sort of thing mm -hmm. and to me and I still would say this now I just think if you would I think it would just cause a lot of confusion if you were to change it and I don't think because like if you look at someone the only argument you could maybe make is say like for example if they wanted to when it came to like the disabled spaces or on a disabled toilet if you put multiple symbols so you've got the wheelchair symbol. There is a symbol for, you know, guide dog. You know, you have it on like a guide dog mm -hmm. badge when you're an owner. Um, I don't know what... Is there a symbol for... Is there actually a symbol for a person who's deaf? Because that's one, again, like visually, I think it's very hard to portray unless if you do a real comedic, you know, back in the olden days, the massive, mm. like, speaker protruding from their ear, you know. Um, I haven't come across... I've come across... Um, accessible toilets with multiple figures like I think one you have mentioned is like someone with a walking stick as well is one I've seen yes, about yes yes um, because that, that also sort I of covers elderly seen... as well right I think that one yeah that one um, tends to be anyway I think yeah but I, I'm not sure um, if I've seen any symbols of how I will, I will ask um, my mum and her partner well, her partner is deaf and my mum is hard of hearing, so I will ask okay. if maybe they've, they know of um, one that they probably would have spotted it if they've seen it about. Yeah, because I don't know. I mean, I don't know what what's your thought on it. I just think as a whole, 
I said, I just personally think the wheelchair symbol, for what it represents, I think it's it makes sense because again, it's just it's it makes people know what it is. I know, again, it has its negatives, as we've talked about that everyone seems yeah. to associate. Because again, it's one of those things. It's like when I'm sat in a cafe, the harness isn't on my dog, because you know he's just lying next to me, and it's very much it's something said by the charity. You know, if you're going to be staying still for a while, you take the harness off so the dog can relax. Because mm-hmm. if you had the if you had the dog just lying down with the harness on, they they can't they they won't be able to properly relax. One, don't think it'd be that comfortable lying down with the harness on their back. Uh, but two, because they associate it with working, they'll sort of be there like, so when are we going? Like, yeah, you know, you know. But and again, I'll often have the harness under my chair. And say, so I've had people come up to me, like, you know, workers in the thing, like, they'll come up to me and just be there, like, oh, sorry, you can't, you're not allowed dogs in here. And I'm just say, like, you know, take the harness out from under my chair and just say, he's a guide dog. They're just like, oh, so sorry. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, but again, it's because I'm sat there. I don't have my sunglasses on often because, you know, normally sit in, uh, try and position myself so the sun won't be in my eyes. And, you know, yeah. it feels a bit personally you know if I'm there with mates and stuff or you know my wife it feels odd just looking at them with my sunglasses on talking mm-hmm. uh, and in this kind of weather it actually can get very sweaty around the eyes if I have my glasses on um, yeah you could imagine that yeah but yeah they will you know because of that again as I assume as I've been told I don't look blind they then just see the dog assume you know i don't know i'm some in my mind anyway some rude person who's just gone you know screw screw the rules of no dogs in cafes and stuff and pubs uh well like most pubs uh well at least chains anyway um you know like and i've just walked in but yeah i just i'm rambling somewhat so (laughs) I think in answer to your question about the the symbol, like it, I agree that like changing it now, I don't think I think would cause more confusion because mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like an internationally recognised symbol. Um, yeah, but you know it does it doesn't help all of the like stigmatisation and the assumptions and but I think that people need to have a more inclusive view of disability itself yeah because um, sorry to cut you off there but I just argue, like, I feel like the stigmatisation that's reflective on society not the symbol like we're at a point saying not yes. everyone not everyone assumes all women wear skirts yes or dresses like you know with the woman's symbol on the toilet yeah there's so much more to inclusivity and accessibility than what symbol you put on the toilet door yes um so yeah that is an interesting one though I've never heard that question before about whether or not it should be changed well so that was in A level media I did so what that was that was 10 years ago oh wow (laughs) yeah and there were some interesting suggestions nothing major bad but yeah yeah um, um to I suppose to to get sort of, uh, back on track, 
um, yeah. <laughs> with uh, your disability and um, your situation. So, mm-hmm. as far as, so you said when you went to Switzerland, that was during uni, was it? Um. Yeah, so I moved out and lived in France and Switzerland for nearly a year in between um, so a gap year between A-levels and uni Okay. then I did my first year of uni and then um, I moved back out for the summer in between year one and year two okay what what made you choose like France and Switzerland for your gap year um great question like I enjoyed French at GCSE level count I think I got an A. I was fairly okay at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I wanted to be somewhere that if something, like, drastically bad happened, I was not going to be, you know, on the other side of the planet. Right. Um, but that's just me. That's just why, you know, where I felt my boundaries wanted to be. You know, sure. I wanted to be close enough that I could get home if I needed to. Because, of course, I was moving out somewhere I'd never lived before. Um, you know, with someone else, a completely different family and language and everything. So, mm-hmm. that was just one of the things that made me feel a bit safer. But I really enjoyed it. I really, really did. Like, I I don't regret going out there. And what what happened to me is by no means a reflection on... <laughs> you know, Swiss people. No, not at all. Uh, but yeah, so, so I, suppose I just find it interesting that that means you, as far as your symptoms then, did they, or you starting to get your diagnosis, I should say, did that come, crop up whilst you were at uni then? Well, <laughs> good question. Hmm. So, I finished year two, so year two would have been September 2019 to May 2020, mm-hmm. so I finished year two um, and then I started year three, Right. but um, mentally, like for my own mental health, I took an interruption year, and like bear in mind that obviously we're now speaking about like COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, uni had moved all completely online. I was living in this tiny room in a shared flat in the middle of, you know, Preston. And I was just in this tiny bedroom all day, every day. I just didn't really cope well with it. Um, and then my symptoms were getting, uh, were starting to develop, like, on the sort of later half of the year um so i I just took an interruption year at the time that i was diagnosed i was working as a carer uh, because that's what i did with my interruption year i worked in care right um, for as long as i could i am no longer able to work because of my condition um i stopped working in march this year um, and i haven't been able to do anything since I'm just too sick. It's exhausting. Just you know, all my all my peers are in the prime of their lives, and I'm struggling to survive. So, um, yeah, I, I went back to year three, and that was quite an experience 
coming back from my interruption year mm-hmm. as you know when I had left the 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 course like I was an able-bodied person and when I returned I was disabled so my experience of uni was like really really different um for third year anyway did you do you find uh being someone with fibro did it affect your ability to study and all massively yeah yeah I I spent a lot of time trying to get stuff in place um, so that I could, you know, access the education that I was paying for. Um, and it just, you know, it it was really hard. I'm not going to, like, it was not easy. I'm, I will never say that it was. True. Um, but, you know, I did it. I graduated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yay for that. But, um, no, it was really really weird trying to interact with these systems that I've been dealing with for years and then trying to do the same thing but all of a sudden being disabled and then because of that everything was you know a billion times harder even just you know getting around into my lecture theatre like there was one day where they no one had told me that they were doing maintenance on the lift and so I crawled to my lecture um, up some stairs uh, which obviously you know if I was able-bodied I would never have had to have done that but um, even the littlest things I just got so much harder it was like fighting tooth and nail for everything yeah was there much of a reaction to to you crawling to your lecture I can't I can imagine that not like not to you know not shaming you for doing it at all I'm just like I can't imagine that was well, one a, just a unique experience for yourself not in a positive way obviously and mm-hmm. also unique for the people because I'm like for people who were in the lecture as in me like so, yeah, so at the end of the day obviously you're in that situation how you feel comes over how they feel um, but yeah yeah, well, I was going to my lectures super early anyway because I knew that, you know, it. I knew that there was just going to be. There's always something, okay. There's it's it's always like the automatic door doesn't work, or you know, there there's some lecture theatres that I couldn't get to without using stairs, um, and this was still when I used a walking stick. So, um, but you know, I, I had to climb a couple of flights of these stairs up. Um, people from my lecture like my class didn't see me but people walked past me on the stairs like full um, full time academic tutors uh, just walked past me and looked at me with this kind of like weird mix of pity and horror (laughs) as I was you know pulling myself up these stairs uh, you know crawling um, and then I got my lecture was on the floor where actually the the guy working on doing the maintenance on the lift was, and he apologised profusely. But um, yeah, that was quite an interesting. One. But because I'd had to do that, then I didn't have actually the the energy um, to carry my stuff to class. So then my lecturer, I managed to get to the lecture hall where I 
got a hold of my lecturer, told her what had happened, and so people went back to get my things uh, because I'd had to just leave a bunch of my stuff. Because um, I was like, well, I've got to get up, so here we go. Mm. Um, so someone, some of the um, students from my class carried my things in that day. It's quite a... I don't think I'm overselling it by saying a bit of a harrowing experience to go through. Yeah, I sent a very strongly worded email. <laughs> um, it was like, what else could I have done? Yeah, like, mm. but there was nothing else to do. Like, sure. You know, nobody stopped to help me. Nobody even like offered me help. Um, yeah. I was, you know, very much on my own. Uh, just trying to. So, you know, all I could do at that point was just, like, send an email to um, one of my, like, the the course leader. Yeah. You know, kind of saying, like, how is it possible, you know, you have all of this information about my, you know, pages and pages I wrote about my accessibility needs that were all signed off by um, the inclusive support team. We said, like, yep, these are all fine. All of my shooters were supposed to read them and stuff, and then, you know, they couldn't tell me about some, like, actually planned maintenance on a lift in a building I was in. Mm. You know, before a lecture, I just kind of felt really, really let down because, you know, if I hadn't have crawled up, I just wouldn't have been able to go. I would not have been able to get to that lecture. Um, and, you know, so instead I had to go through the humiliation of dragging myself up some stairs with my hands yeah I think I suppose as far as like people not helping you like I get like as someone like I'm not good with social interaction so I get it that people get awkward about stuff but I suppose you'd like to think with something like that Especially, I suppose, your peers is one thing, but you'd like to think any of the superiors would, you know, be able to lend a hand. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, it would have made that experience a very different one, I think. Yeah. Um, but instead, you know, it's like that story of the Good Samaritan that they always, like, harp into you as a child so that you mm -hmm. don't do that don't walk past someone that's in trouble and it's like oh yeah they looked at me and they saw what was happening and then they just carried on walking away yeah no certainly i suppose i don't think to say it's ironic is right or maybe it is but as we sort of i think we we said this actually before we start recording with When it comes to like being disabled, a way that it sort of is different from other minorities uh, is that someone who is not disabled could easily be the next day from yes. from something that may happen, whether that's an accident, like a physical accident, whether that is a dormant condition inside them and then they just wake up the next day and it's taken effect 
uh, you know, it's, it really is, like, quite e easily done, and I guess, I mean, in your situation, I suppose it's not exactly on the same, uh, sort of the same line, but I suppose you being here and talking to you and what you're saying, like growing up Ableton stuff is a demonstration of that, that despite these, you know, tragic things happening to you, you weren't there thinking, you know, well, I assume anyway, you weren't there thinking this could lead to me being disabled. Oh my goodness, no way. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea. Um, yeah. And then I, since I've been di diagnosed and spoken to other people, um, like online with fibro, it seems to be quite um, a common one. Um, you know, I, I'm not alone in where I am, like in what the trigger was for me. Right. Um, which is sad <laughs> uh, because, you know, ideally I would hope that no one else would ever go through this. Um, you know, there have been times where I've like genuinely begged my partner to end my life because I would rather go through death and nothing, feel nothing ever, ever again than continue living in the pain that I do. Sometimes it is just off the scale, like, I I can't even describe to you how horrific that pain can get. And then the knowledge that somebody, you know, somebody effectively kind of did this to me. Um, it's quite difficult to wrap your head around. Um, yeah, because I guess at least if, say, it was a situation of, I mentioned, like a dormant genetic condition that then just awakens and kicks in like that is a very upsetting situation but I suppose in comparison it's it would at least it's like you could sort of look at it as bad luck you know you drew you drew a short straw uh you know in the game of destiny whatever you whatever you want to look at it as but in your situation it is very much you know like you said this was it's hard to not look at it as this was you know out of your control but it's in the sense of it was done to you yeah and you yeah, know, it's something I struggle with a lot yeah I could have very much imagine like say I've had moments where Again, and I would say I'm not by any means claiming this would be on the same level, but I suppose to sort of show an element of relating, you know, I think it was suggested that the tumour that I had, the brain tumour that caused my blindness, was in my head growing for two years. Wow. So it's like there have been times, especially when growing up, you know, I think even more so when I was a teenager, which I don't think it's... Uh, controversial to say that is when you can sometimes be at your most angsty and angry at the world mm -hmm. um, you know I'd be there like if they had just found it you know earlier you know I wouldn't be here like in this situation mm -hmm. you know there'd be times and then obviously then there's the other scale where you know 
I've said to people before, it's like, at the time, I don't know about right now, because this is, you know, 20 plus years on, but at the time, it was the second highest caller of, uh, uh, second highest cause of death in children, a brain tumour. So the fact that I am still alive is, you know, a high feat in itself. So then at the same yeah. time, would I rather be alive and blind than not here at all? Certainly, majority of the time, I would say so. And I say majority because yeah. I don't think it's uh, that much of a surprise to say there are moments where, grow, you know, in my life I've thought, no. Because, yeah. you know, you know, again, if people aren't aware, you know, there is a high correlation between disabled people and depression. So, yes, you know, I, I am not uh, apart from that correlation. Mm, indeed, yeah. You know, but I, I suppose like you talk about how significant the pain can be for you and people may be wondering is there at this point then is there no medication there's no way of dealing with the pain um so some people do use medication some people have used medication and find it to be helpful for them it's kind of you know like i said at the start it's it's very much like here is a box of things that have helped people just some people like you know over fibro you have to kind of go through everything some of it will work some of it won't some of it will be a bit rubbish but might do on a you know on a fairly okay day so like i started on uh codeine cocodamol uh -huh. um and then uh i was moved then uh to paracetamol and naproxen and then it got moved up to tramadol and then up to gabapentin. Um, right. I really did not tolerate gabapentin well. Um, it, it was a really horrific experience for me and I only took it for a week. Uh, <laughs> and I was in A&E by the end of it because um, you know, it, it really, it just did turn me into a zombie. I really hated it. Um, like I currently take um, paracetamol, naproxen and tramadol as uh, painkillers, then I'm also on a higher dose of sertraline uh -huh. because um, there is evidence that um, you know having more serotonin is that it, it can be beneficial for people with fibro because typically we have low serotonin levels. Um, but I, you know, I also take antihistamines because I've got really severe allergies. Um, I take a couple, two different anti-nausea medications because right. of all the other medications I'm taking, like make me feel wildly ill. Like I'm sick at least once a day. Um, and then I have my inhalers as well. So that's like just my medication. Um, and then I take things to protect my stomach lining and all sorts. I also use, um, they found the only thing they've ever found in all these medical tests they've done is that I have a vitamin D deficiency, so I do take my vitamin D, um, right. like a multivitamin, curcumin, CBD oil. I found to be quite helpful. Um, but on top of that, you know, at the moment, like as I'm speaking to you now, I have these giant 
uh, deep freeze pads all over my legs. Uh, I quite I find that deep freeze tends to work sort of on a low level, but it sometimes it's enough that I can concentrate on things without being distracted because I'm in so much pain. Right. Um, I use uh, hemp creams, like hemp and menthol creams. Um, a tens machine I use, athletic and muscle tape. I have smart light bulbs in my house because of the photophobia, which I know you mentioned for yourself, um, and it is a big thing for people with fibro as well. Right. Um, noise cancelling headphones. I, in terms of like my, I have much, mm, much more of an issue dealing with uh, sensory input than I did before. Um, my fibro diagnosis, so things like light and sound, so I have um, like noise cancelling headphones, I've got a cooling eye mask, um, you know, I've got an acupressure mat, and then I have blankets for when I'm too cold, and blankets for when I'm too hot, and blankets that are weighted, and blankets that are not. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've got lots and lots of things all around my house that I'm using to try and manage these symptoms, but I haven't figured it out for myself yet. It's going to take me years to do that. I which mean, is also fun. Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, I'm sure that is kind of daunting to think of, but at the same time, it's also not that surprising, I guess, considering really if what you were diagnosed in 2021, you're only just over a year into this in some ways. And I guess, and I know some people may hear that and think, well, surely that's long enough, but. I feel like when you're disabled, you know, I've, I feel like there are times, say, even now, like, I'm <laughs> not to uh, concern yourself or anyone else who's newly disabled, but, you know, I'm 22 years into my disability, and I don't know if I could say that I've fully figured it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, people kept saying this to me at the start, and it was so horrifying to me because the thought that the pain was going to continue like you know you have to face that you know a doctor kind of turns you and be like okay this is your life now you're like wait what mm. like no you're supposed to cure me like i'm supposed to get better and they're just like no yeah this this so is supposed this to is be it. like bit life <laughs> yeah um you just click a button and, I, and get better yeah i used to be so horrified by you know the reality that I was going to have to continue being in pain to learn what was going to help me cope with it. Mm. Um, yeah, and if you think, you know, some people with fibro have had a wildly different experience and might be years into their diagnosis and have never needed to use the mobility aids, but for me, in, you know, pretty, you know, a year and a half less than. I've gone from being an able-bodied person to somebody who can't leave their house um, and is now a wheelchair user um, and, you know, I have so many other problems, even just, like, now I can feel my brain get I'm tired just from talking, like, the fatigue is there um, and I'm really, really struggling to find my words now. Sure. I can just feel it happening. I can just feel it slipping away. Like, I haven't got control of what my body does. And every morning I wake up and I know that 
no matter how I feel or what I do, my body is going to control exactly what happens all the way through the day. Like I've just kind of got to be along for the ride and do the best I can. Sure. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if uh, you're starting to struggle, I don't want to uh, keep going for too much longer. Uh, I suppose I was wondering though if uh, uh, if you wouldn't mind. I wondered if if we have a way of trying to end a bit more positively. Yeah. And talking about, like, I know we've talked about previous hobbies of yours trampolining and uh, often working out in the gym which is are things that you may feel less well, I say you feel that you are less able to do current uh, right now and probably mm -hmm. f for uh, for the future but there are there like other hobbies that you like do still very much part partake in or maybe even have gained as a result of tr trying to adapt? Uh, yeah, um, I really enjoy using like Procreate, like drawing on my iPad. Uh -huh. I like that, especially, you know, I, I love it for the fact that I don't have to clean up any mess when I'm done. Sure. Um, I can just put it, pick it up and put it down whenever I want to and carry it around with me. So I found that um, doing artwork on my iPad has been really, really it's been nice to have the time and opportunity to do that. Um, I've got an embroidery project on at the moment. I'm sort of very, very slowly doing. I find I have a lot of problem with um, problems with the joints in my body, and especially my hands. They can fatigue and dislocate really, really easily. So right. the embroidery is taking me some time, but it's been quite nice to do something without a screen. Mm -hmm. I feel like I spend a lot of my life in front of screens, whether that's like scrolling on social media or watching TV. Um, yeah, I'm just desperately trying to entertain myself and it's nice to find ways to do it without having a screen. So embroidery, I've got shelves and shelves of books I need to read. I feel like that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. In fact, I bought another book on fibromyalgia this week, only for it to come and realise that I already have the newer edition of said book, so I need to send that one back. Ah. Well, easily done. Yeah. Uh, I changed the cover. It's it's not... It's confused me. <laughs> sure. That's fair. Uh, what about... Because, again, I suppose, you know, surprise, surprise to people, this isn't the first time we are speaking. We have... Uh, spoken previously you mentioned about playing uh, is it Magic the Gathering yes um, that is something I've gotten into watching anime playing Magic the Gathering um, both of which are at fault of my partner I must say um, but it's been really fun um, to play Magic like my mum massively into Magic D&D, LARPing I never was but Sure. I'm finding it like quite quite joyful. I like that I can, you know, just be in a different world where fiber doesn't exist. <laughs> um, I can concentrate on, you know, the deck I like to play is uh, an enchantments deck with a, a mermaid commander. So I'm like, yeah, I'll just keep playing this. And um, through playing magic, actually, I've met. Um, 
you know, someone who's now my best friend um, and has taught me how to use a wheelchair and given me access to um, a lot of information and resources about disability that I never would have interacted with if I hadn't have met her. So I am thankful for that as well. Make make good friends in the magic circles. Sure, yeah. That's uh, very good. I mean, I mean, it makes sense in some ways that on your own you may have not been as aware about uh, ways to help yourself with your disability, I guess, when it's something that you've only acquired recently. Yeah, and a lot of the information I get is from profession, like healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, you know, I have friends with lived experience of disability that's a lot longer than mine is. Um, so they're aware of, you know, resources and websites and organisations that I pretty much don't hear of because even, you know, the professional circles aren't aware of them. So it's been really, really, really helpful to, um, not exactly have a mentor, but somebody that kind of understands and is able to help me and say like, oh, right, you've run into this problem. Of course you have. So let me help you find the way around it. Because for me, I'm experiencing a lot of these challenges and barriers for the very first time. Whereas somebody who has been living with a disability much, much longer than I have. Uh, will have, you know, probably already has a lot of a device that is invaluable to me. Certainly. No, I think it's very much the case in anything, really, isn't it? That it's all well and good someone being, you know, trained, qualified in certain industries, but the reality is if they haven't lived it themselves, they're not going to be as knowledgeable with someone who has yeah and again I think that's the case for pretty much anything not just disability and such yeah well uh, I'm I'm very aware that there's probably still more we could talk about like uh, I haven't really gone into what you did for your degree at uni uh huh Um, okay but I'm also aware of uh, not wanting the episode to be too long. Um, yeah. And also not wanting to um, exhaust yourself, really. Well, you could always have me on for another episode, Callum. Yes, that's what I was just sort of saying, that I suppose I'm just saying up uh, for uh, people listening, that I think uh, certainly... Uh, it may not be the immediate episode after this one, but definitely uh, you will be, uh, I think, back at some point. Yeah, we can have an hour talking uh, sexual health and disability. That's literally what I wrote my dissertation on, so I could chat about that for hours. There you go, yeah, that may be, um, I don't know, still uh, still a bit of a, an adult subject, but maybe a bit more light-hearted in places than what we've spoken about today yes certainly yeah so again thank you for joining me today b thank you so much for having me callum it's been a pleasure uh, the pleasure's uh, all mine and 
thank you to those of you for listening again you know very aware that this today's episode has been heavy following our last one which was also a bit heavy so you know hope though you've found it very informative and hopefully upcoming episodes will be again a bit more entertaining I guess on the lighter side but until next time goodbye well that was a very informative chat hopefully you found it educational and somewhat entertaining you can follow me on twitter at theblindbrennan send an email to theblindbrennan at gmail.com or join the facebook group listen with your eyes if you can like share and rate the podcast that would be very much appreciated you've been listening with your eyes and you'll hear us again next time Thank you.